Chapter 3, Part C of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter 3, Part C. The inside of the converted army bomber smelled like exactly what it was a barn. Ten sheep and a solitary goat were tethered to stanchions along the sides. The sheep bleated continuously, the goat looked cynically forbearing, and all gave off an ammoniacal smell which was not absorbed by the bed of hay under their hooves. Enthusiasm for this venture was an emotion I found practically impossible to summon up. Even without Lafassacy's sanguinary prophecies, I objected to the trip. I had never been in a plane in my life, and this for no other reason than disinclination. I feared every possible consequence of the parachute jump, from instant annihilation through a broken neck in the jerk of its opening, down to being smothered in its folds on the ground. I distinctly did not want to go. But caution sometimes defeats itself. I was so afraid of going that I hesitated to admit my timidity and so i found myself herded with my two companions the pilot and crew in with the sheep and the goat i was not resigned but i was quiescent goots and the animals were not while we waited he went through his entire stock of tricks including a few new ones which were not completely successful before the cameraman panting arrived ten minutes after our scheduled departure his name was rafe slafe which I thought an improbable combination of syllables, and he was so chubby in every part, you imagined you saw the smile which ought to have gone with such a face and figure. Before his breath had settled down to a normal routine, Goots had rushed upon him with an enthusiastic, Ah, Raffaello muchacho, give to me the abrazo, como usted compañero. Slave scorned reply, pushing Goots aside with one plump hand, while with the other he tidied the sparse black hairs of his mustache, which was trimmed down to an eyebrow shading his lip. After inspecting and rejecting several identical bucket seats, he found one less to his distaste than the others and stowed his equipment, which was extensive, requiring several puffing trips back and forth next to it. Then he lowered his backside onto the unyielding surface with the same anxiety with which he might have deposited a fortune in a dubious bank. His hands darted in and out of pockets, which apparently held a small pharmacopoeia. Pulling out a roll of absorbent cotton from which he plucked two wads, he stuck them thoughtfully in his ears. He withdrew a nasal syringe and used it vigorously, swallowed gulps of a clearly labeled seasick remedy, and then sucked at pills from various boxes whose purpose was not so obvious. To conclude, he unstopped a glass vial and sniffed at it. All the while, Goots hovered over him, solicitously deluging him with friendly queries in one accent or another. I lost interest in both fellow passengers, for the plane, after shaking us violently, started forward, and before I was clearly aware of it had left the ground. Looking from the windows, I regretted my first airplane ride hadn't been taken under less trying circumstances, for it was an extraordinarily pleasant experience to see the field dwindle into a miniature of itself, and the ground beneath become nothing more than a large and highly colored relief map. To our right was the stagnant river, dammed up behind the blockading arm of grass. 
Leftward, downtown, the thumb of the city hall pointed rudely upward, and far beyond was the listless Pacific. Ahead, the gridiron of streets was shockingly interrupted and severed by the great green mass plumped in its center. It grew to enormous bigness, and everything else disappeared. We were over and looked down upon it, a pasture hummock magnified beyond belief, retaining its essential identity, but made ominous by its inappropriate situation and size. As we hovered above the very pinnacle, the rounded peak which poked up at us, the pilot spoke over the intercommunication system. We will circle till the load is disposed of. First the animals will be dropped, then the equipment, finally the passengers. Is that clear? Everything was clear to me, except how we should escape from that green mountain once we had got upon it. This was apparently in the hands of Lofasisi, a realization, remembering his grisly conversation, making me no easier in my mind. Nor did I relish the pilot's casual description of myself as part of a load to be disposed of. Slaif suddenly came to life, and after peering through a sort of lorgnette, hanging around his neck, mumbling unintelligibly to himself all the while, started his camera, which went on clicking magically with no apparent help from him. Efficiently and swiftly, the crew fastened upon the helpless and bleeding sheep their parachutes, and one by one dropped them through the open Bombay. The goat went last, and she did not bleat, but dexterously butted two of her persecutors, and micturated upon the third before being cast into space. I would have foregone the dubious honor of being the first to land upon the grass, but the crew apparently had their orders. I was courteously tapped upon the shoulder, I presume the warders are polite when they enter the condemned cell at dawn. My chute was strapped upon me, and the instructions I had already read in their printed form at least sixty times were repeated verbally, so much to my confusion that when I was finally in the air I do not know to this day whether I counted six, sixty, six hundred, or six thousand before jerking the ripcord. Whatever the number, it was evidently not too far wrong, for although I received a marrow-exploding shock, the parachute opened, and I floated down. But no sooner were my fears of the parachute's performance relieved than I was for the first time assailed with apprehension at the thought of my destination. The grass, the weed, the destroying body which had devoured so much was immediately below me. I was irrevocably committed to come upon it, not at its edges where other men battled with it heroically, but at its very heart where there were none to challenge it. Still tormented and dejected, I landed easily and safely a few feet from the goat, and just behind the rear quarters of one of the sheep. And now I pause in my writing to sit quite still and remember, more than remember, live through again, the sensation of that first physical contact with the heart of the grass. Ecstasy is a pale word to apply to the joy of touching and resting upon that verdure. Soft. Yes, it was soft, but the way sand is soft, unyieldingly. Unlike sand, however, it did not suggest a tightly packed foundation, but rather the firmness of a good mattress resting on a well-made spring. It was resilient, like carefully tended turf, yet at the same time one thought not of the solid ground beneath, but of feathers, 
or even more of buoyant clouds. My parachute having landed me gently on my feet, I sank naturally to my knees, and then, impelled by some other force than gravity, my body fell fully forward in complete relaxation until my face was buried in the thickly growing combs and my arms stretched out to embrace as much of the lush surface as they could encompass. Far more complex than the mere physical reactions were the psychical ones. When a boy, I had, like every other, daydreamed of discovering new continents, of being first to climb a hitherto unscaled peak, to walk before others the shores of strange archipelagos, to bring back tales of outlandish places and unfrequented isles. Well, I was doing these things now, long after the disillusionment adolescence brought to these childish dreams. But in addition, it was in a sense my island, my mountain, my land, for I had caused it to be. A sensation of tremendous vivacity and well-being seized upon me. I could not have lain upon the grass more than half a second before I leaped to my feet. With a nimbleness quite foreign to my natural habits, I detached the encumbering chute and jumped and danced upon the sward. The goat regarded me speculatively through rectangular pupils, but did not offer in true capricious fashion to gamble with me. Her criticism did not stay me, for I felt absolutely free, extraordinarily exhilarated, inordinately stimulated. I believe I even went so far as to shout out loud and break into song. The descent of Slaif, still solemnly recording the event, camera before him in the position of present arms, did not sober my intoxication, though circumspection caused me to act in a more conventional way. I freed him from his harness, for he was too busy taking views of the grass, the sky, the animals, and me, to perform this service for himself. I do not know if he was affected the way I was, for his deceptively genial face showed no emotion as he went on aiming his camera here and there with sour thoroughness. Then, apparently satisfied for the moment, he applied himself once more to the nasal syringe in the pillboxes. On Goots, however, the consequence of the landing must have been much the same as on me. He, too, capered and sang, and his dialect renderings reached a new low, such as even a burlesque show comedian would have spurned. "'Tis the old sword itself,' he kept repeating. "'Erin go bra up dev!' and he laughed inanely. We must have wasted fully an hour in this fashion before enough coolness returned to allow anything like calm observation. When it did, we unpacked the equipment, despite obstacles interposed by Goots, who, still hilarious, found great delight in making the various instruments disappear and reappear unexpectedly. It was quite complete, and we, or rather Slaif, recorded the thermometer and barometer readings as well as the wind direction and altitude, these to be later compared with others taken under normal conditions at the same hour. Included in the gear were telescope and binoculars, these we put to our eyes only to realize with surprise that we were located in the center of a hollow bowl, perhaps a hundred and fifty or two hundred feet across, and that an horizon of upsurging vegetation cut off our view of anything except the sky itself. I could have sworn we had landed on a flat plateau, if indeed the contour had not sloped upward to a cap. How, then, did we come to find ourselves in a depression? Did the grass shift like the sea it resembled, 
or incredible thought had our weight caused us to sink imperceptibly into a soft and treacherous bed i felt my happiness oozing away what is man i thought but a pygmy trapped in a bowl bounded by an unknown beginning and headed for a concealed destination it was sweet to be but whether good or evil lay in the unseen who knew uneasiness which did not quite displace my earlier buoyancy took hold of me the animals in contrast gave no signals of disquiet they cropped at the grass without nervousness perhaps more from habit than hunger they did not seem to be obtaining much sustenance clearly they found it hard to bite off mouthfuls of forage rather they chewed sideways like a cat at the tough rubbery tendrils i tank i want to go home anyways i tank i want to get out of dis hole remarked goots slaif had unpacked another camera and attached various gadgets to it pursing his lips and running his hands lovingly over the assembled product before thrusting it downward into the stolons where queer shocks of radiance seemed to indicate he was taking flashlight pictures of the subsurface but the sheep and the cameraman could not distract my attention from the appearance of a trap which the basin of grass was assuming, while Goots was so volatile he couldn't even put on a simulated stoicism. In a panic, I started to climb frantically, all the elation of my first encounter with the mound completely evaporated. The goat raised her head to note my undignified scrambling, but the sheep kept up their determined nibbling. The trough, as I said, could not have been more than a couple of hundred feet across, and though the loose runners impeded my progress, I must have covered twice the distance to the edge of the rim before I realized it was as far from me as when I had started. Goots, going in a direction oblique to mine, had no better success. His waving arms and struggling body indicated his awareness of his predicament. Only Slaif was undisturbed perhaps unconscious of our efforts for he had taken out still another camera and was lying on his back pointing it over our heads at the boundary of grass and sky hysteria burned my lungs as i continued the dreamlike battle upward fear may have confused me but it seemed as though the enveloping weed was now positively rather than merely negatively hampering me the runners whipped around my legs in clinging spirals the surface, always soft, now developed treacherous spots like quicksands, and while one foot remained comparatively secure, the other sank deeply, tripping me. Prone, the entangling fronds caught at my arms and neck. The green blades, no longer tender, scratched my face and smothered my useless cries for help. I sobbed childishly, knowing myself doomed to die in this awful morass drowned in an unnatural sea so despairing were my thoughts that i gave up all struggle and lay there weakly crying when i noticed the grass relaxing its hold i was sinking in no further indeed it seemed the lightest effort would set me free i rose to my knees and finally to my feet but i was so shaken by my battle i made no attempt to continue forward but stood gazing around me, marveling that I was still, if only for a few more moments, alive. Belly belong, you walk about too much, eh? Him fella look look, no got belly. 
Goots had given up his endeavor to reach the rim, and apparently struggled all the way over to impart, if I understood his beche de mer, this absurd and self-evident piece of information. "'This is hardly a time for levity,' I rebuked him coldly. "'Couldn't think of a better. Reality is escaped through one flippancy or another. Rafe has his.' He waved his hand toward the still-industrious cameraman, and I have mine. I bet W.R. has a telescope or a periscope or a spectroscope somehow trained on us right now, and we'll see to it the rescue party arrives, ten minutes after all life is extinct. To tell the truth, I'd forgotten our expedition was but a stunt initiated by the daily intelligencer to rebound to its greater publicity. Here in this isolate cup, it was difficult to conceive of an anterior existence. I thought of myself as in some strange manner indigenous to and part of the weed. To recall now that we were here purposefully, that others were concerned with our venture, and that we might reasonably hope for succor, extricated me from my subjective entanglement with the grass much as the relaxation of my body a short while before freed me from its physical bonds. I looked hopefully at the empty sky. Of course we would get help at any moment. Once more my spirits were raised. There was no point in trying to get out of the depression now, seeing we could as easily be rescued from one portion of the grass as from another. Again the grass was soft and pleasant to touch, and Slay's preoccupation with his pictures no longer seemed either eccentric or heroic, but rather proper and sensible. Like Alice in the Red Queen, since we had given up trying to reach a particular spot, we found ourselves able to travel with comparative ease. We inspected Slaif's activities with interest, and responded readily to his autocratic gestures, indicating positions and poses we should take in order to be incorporated in his record. But our gaiety was again succeeded by another period of despondency. We repeated all our antics, struggles, and despair. Again I fought madly against the enmeshing weed, and again I gave myself up to death, only to be revived in the moment of my resignation. The cameraman was still untouched by the successive waves of fear and joyfulness. Invincibly armored by some strange spirit, he kept on and on, although by now I could not understand, in those moments when I could think about anything other than the grass, what new material he could find for his film skyward and downward to all points of the compass holding his cameras at crazy angles burlesquing all photographers his zeal was unabated unaffected even by the force of the grass our alternating moods underwent a subtle change the spans of defeat grew longer the moments of hope more fleeting the sheep, too, at last were infected by uneasiness, bleeding piteously skyward and making no attempt to nibble any longer. The goat, like Slaif, was unmoved. She disdained the emotional sheep. And now, with horror, I suddenly realized that a physical change had marched alongside the fluctuations of our temper. The circumference of the bowl was the same as at first, but imperceptibly, yet swiftly, the hollow had deepened, sunk farther from the sky. The walls had become almost perpendicular, and to my terror I found myself looking upward from the bottom of a pit at the retreating sky. I suppose everyone at some time has imagined himself irrevocably imprisoned, cast into some lightless dungeon and left to die. 
Such visions implied human instrumentality, human whim. The most implacable jailer might relent. But this, this was an incarceration no supplication could end, a doom not to be stayed. Silently, evenly, unmeasuredly, the well deepened, and the walls became more sheer. Like kittens about to be ignominiously drowned, we slid into a huddled bunch at the bottom of the sack, men and animals equally helpless and distraught. Fortunately, it was during one of the now rare periods of resurgence that we saw the helicopter, for I do not think we should have had the spiritual strength needful to help ourselves had it come during our times of dejection. Goots and I yelled and waved our arms frenziedly, while Slafe, exhibiting faint excitement for the first time, contorted himself to aim the camera at the machine's belly. Evidently, the pilot spotted us without difficulty, for the ship came to a hovering rest over the mouth of the well, and a Jacob's ladder unrolled its length to dangle rope sides and wooden rungs down to us. Snatched from the buzz saw as the express thundered across the switch and the water came up to our noses, chanted Goots. W.R. has a vilely melodramatic sense of timing. The latter was nearest Slafe, but working more furiously than ever, he waved it impatiently aside, and so I grasped it and started upward. The terror of the ascent, paradoxically, was a welcome one, for it was the common fear which comes to men on the battlefield or in the creaking hours of the night, the natural dread of ordinary perils, and not the unmanning panic inspired by the awful unknown within the grass. The helicopter shuddered and dipped, causing the unanchored ladder to sway and twist until with each convulsive jerk I expected to be thrown off. I bruised and burned my palms with the tightness of my grip, my knees twitched and my face and back and chest were wet, but in spite of all this waves of thankfulness surged over me. The roaring and rattling above grew louder and I made my way finally into the open glass-fronted cockpit pulling myself in with the last bit of my strength for a long moment i lay huddled there exhausted my eye took in every trifle every bolthead rivet scratch dent indicator seam and panel playing with them in my mind making and rejecting patterns they were artificial made on a blessed assembly line no terrifying product of nature I wondered how so small a space could accommodate us all, and was devoutly grateful that I at least had achieved safety. Reminded of my companions, I looked out and down. The grass walls towered upward almost within reach. Beyond the hole they so unexpectedly made in its surface, the weeds stretched out levelly, peaceful and inviting. I shuddered and peered down the reversed telescope where the latter once more hung temptingly before Slafe. Again he waved it aside. Goots appeared to argue with him, for he shook his head obstinately and went on using his camera. At length the reporter seized him forcibly with a strength I had not known he possessed, and boosted him up the first rungs of the ladder. Slafe seemed at last resigned to leave, but he pointed anxiously to his other cameras and cans of film. Goots nodded energetically and waved the photographer upward. I saw every detail of what happened then, emphasized and heightened as though revealed through a slow-motion picture. I heard Slafe climb on board, and knew that in a few seconds now we would be free and away. 
I saw the bright sun reflect itself dazzlingly upon the blades of the grass, sloping imperceptibly away to merge with the city it squatted upon in the distance. The sun where we were was dazzling, I say, but in the hole where Goots was now tying Slice's paraphernalia to the ladder, the shadow of the walls darkened it into twilight. I squinted, telepathically urging him to hurry. He seemed slow and fumbling, and then... And then the walls collapsed. Not slowly, not with warning, not dramatically or with trumpets. They came together as silently and naturally as two waves close a trough in the ocean, but without disturbance or upheaval. They fell into an embrace, into a coalescence as inevitable as the well they obliterated was fortuitous. They closed like the jaws of a trap, somehow above malevolence, leaving only the top of the ladder projecting upward from the smooth and placid surface of the weed. Whether in some involuntary recoil the pilot pressed a wrong control, or whether the action of the grass itself snatched the ladder from the ship, I don't know, but that last bit attached to the machine was torn free and fell upon the green. It was the only thing to mark the spot where the bull which had held us had been, and it lay a brown and futile tangle of rope and wood, a helpless speck of artifice on an imperturbable mass of vegetation. End of chapter 3, part C